Now, we've been studying the life of Moses over the last few weeks here at Regent as we've been working our way through the book of Exodus, which is the second book in the Bible. And we've reached today a really critical moment, kind of pivotal moment in this narrative. Last week, we saw how Pharaoh had rejected God's command to let his people go, his chosen people, the people of Israel, the Israelites. And they were Pharaoh's slaves. Pharaoh didn't want to lose them. There was about probably two and a half million people who were Israelites at this point. And so you can imagine, this isn't just kind of 3,000 people that he might miss, two and a half million slaves that he's going to lose. He didn't want to lose them. Despite nine different plagues that came upon Egypt, that came upon Pharaoh, the whole nation, Pharaoh wouldn't budge. He wouldn't budge, and he refused to let them go. He refused to submit to God. And then today we reach this great climax, where the tenth plague, a terrible, a horrible plague, much worse than anything that had gone before, comes upon Egypt. We're going to read about that in Exodus chapter 11. So if you've got a Bible handy, uh, or you just want to listen, that's fine, but we're going to read from chapter 11, verses 1 to 8. Chapter 11 of Exodus, second book of the Bible, and verses 1 to 8. And it says this, Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here, and when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbours for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favourably disposed toward the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says, about midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. Steven Spielberg's animated movie, The Prince of Egypt, last week we, we watched a little trailer for the musical uh, stage show version of that. But uh, the original animated movie gives us a little flavour, Hollywood's version, of how perhaps this might have looked. We're going to watch this now.
God's judgment and wrath on Pharaoh finally reached the point where the firstborn son and the firstborn animal in every single household in Egypt died. But the Israelites were unaffected. I don't know if that's exactly how it happened, but that was Spielberg's take on the Bible narrative that perhaps gives us a little bit of an idea of what that might have looked like. But why was it that the Israelites were unaffected? The Israelites didn't have this come upon them. Why were they exempt from this? And why did this happen to the people of Egypt? Why did, or what had the Israelites done which enabled them to escape from God's judgment? Why was it when God's judgment came through the land of Egypt that his judgment passed over the Israelites and went on to the Egyptians? What had caused God to pass over the Israelites so that they were unaffected? Well, you'll have noticed in the movie clip that the Israelites took some blood, and it was blood of lambs that had been uh, that been put to death, and they eaten the lambs, and they took the blood and they applied it to the doorposts and they applied it to the lintels across the, the uh, doors. And when God saw the blood, His judgment passed over them. But let's go to the narrative in Exodus chapter 12. Now let's pick up the the, uh, the narrative in Exodus chapter 12. And Moses is writing this. This is his account of what happened. So Exodus 12, and we're going to read to uh, 1 to 28. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, <coughs> one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You need to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and meat, and sorry, bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread without, made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses, for whoever eats anything with yeast in it, from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day hold a sacred assembly and an, another on the seventh day. Do no work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month you are to eat bread made without yeast. From the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast to be, is to be found in your houses. And whoever eats anything with yeast, then it must be cut off from the community of Israel, whether he is a foreigner or native-born. Eat nothing made with yeast. 
Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once, select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood of the basin and put it on the side of the blood, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. Not one of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on top of the sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did, just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. What a phenomenal account, fascinating account from Moses. Before this tenth and final plague came upon Egypt, the Lord instructed Moses how to ensure that the Israelites didn't face and wouldn't face the same judgment that the Egyptians would face. Each Israelite household was to take a lamb. It was to be a one-year-old male lamb. And they were to watch the lamb for four, for four days to make sure that it had no defect. There was nothing wrong with it. Then they were to, sl to slaughter the lamb at twilight as the sun was setting. And they were to take the blood that had come from that animal, from that lamb, and they were to paint it on their doorposts, upon the lintel across the door. Then they were to have a supper, a special in that lamb that they uh, put to death. And they were to have some unleavened bread along with some bitter herbs. And the unleavened bread, bread without yeast basically, was necessary, the Bible says, because they were in a hurry. They didn't have time to wait for the bread to rise or to prove, as Mary Berry uh, says. I've watched Bake Off, I know what a proving drawer is, so I'm all about that. But they didn't have proving drawers, and they didn't have time for the bread to rise. They were in a hurry, they were in a haste, they had to leave that night. And we're going to see next week how they left that very night. And so because of that, they had to eat the bread without yeast. It was unleavened bread. And they were to eat bitter herbs to go with the meal. And that bitter herb, the bitter herb would have symbolized the 400 years of bitter slavery that the, the nation of Israel had endured as they were in Egypt. This was a meal which was full of symbolism, which in the future, they probably didn't get all the symbolism that night, but in the future, as they look back, year after year, and Jews still do this to this day, as they look back, they would remember, it would remind them, the symbolism in this meal would remind them how God had saved them. As he had passed through Egypt, how he had passed over them. And that very night, God would bring his judgment on the land of Egypt. But listen to what the Lord says in chapter 12, verses 12 to 13. And all the verses are on your outlines, and it should be up on the screen as well. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So God's judgment passed through the land. And the only households that remained untouched, that weren't affected by this, were the ones that were sheltering under the blood of lamb's blood that was put on the doorposts. God passed over those households. The plague of the death of the firstborn sons was the, was the last plague that God put on Egypt. And it was the most severe. This is horrendous. It's kind of lost on us, particularly if you've been to church and you've read this story before or if you're in Sunday school. 
This is horrendous. This is awful. Firstborn son of every household, dead. Firstborn animal in every household, dead. It's an act of judgment by God on Pharaoh. And in, in fact, on the whole nation of Egypt and on their false gods. God says this, I will strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. The Egyptian gods were represented in pictures as having the heads of various animals. These are what they look like based on the various sort of tomb paintings and, and, uh, and such like that are in Egypt today. So when God struck down these firstborn animals in the houses, he was saying that the Egyptian gods, which were represented by animal faces and features and so on, he was saying that these Egyptian gods were false. There was no God. There was only one God, and he was that God. The Bible says in the New Testament that mankind as a whole has rejected God, the truth about God, and has worshipped created things rather than the creator. And this is a great example of mankind, a whole nation, worshipping something that God had created, animals, instead of worshipping God. These were false gods. This was a whole false belief system. And God was showing his judgment upon this false belief system. And when the Egyptians saw the firstborn animal in their household dead, there'd be little doubt in their minds. They would get that. They would understand that this was a statement by the God of the Israelites. And actually, he was the only God. There was no other God. It was a statement that he was the one true God. But God didn't just kill the firstborn animals. That would have been awful. But he also killed every firstborn son in every house, or Egyptian house, including Pharaoh's son. I don't know what you think as you watch that. When you think about what that means, what that looks like, maybe this morning you're thinking, well, it seems a little bit unfair. It doesn't really seem, you know, God's a God of love, and God loves everybody. What is this about? What? Is this the same God? Is this, is this the God of love? Is this, is this fair? I mean, it was Pharaoh, after all, who was opposing God. It wasn't the people of Egypt. It wasn't all of these people all over the nation. Certainly not their firstborn sons. So why did God do this? Well, if we stand back and, or take a step back a little bit and think of a slightly bigger picture, God would be quite within his rights to take the life of every single human being on the planet at any moment because every single human being has rejected God and has said, I refuse to submit to you. I'm going to reject the truth of God. I'm going to worship created things instead of the creator. The Bible teaches us that. And because every single human being has rejected God and sin flows from that rejection, God and his righteousness would be totally right, totally just, totally within his character to say, enough. Every single human being has lost the right to live in this very instance. The very fact that we are still alive this morning is an act of God's mercy. It's an act of God's mercy to each person. God is holy, God is righteous, and sin is absolutely abhorrent to him. But God in his mercy withholds his judgment on us and he allows us and he gives us opportunities to respond to his love. That's a great act of mercy. When he doesn't show mercy, and when he withholds his, and, and, and doesn't withhold his judgment, God isn't being unfair, he's being totally just and right, because every single human being deserves God's wrath. When God chooses not to show mercy, he's being totally just. 
And when he does show mercy, it's not that he's unfair, he's just extending mercy to some people who didn't deserve it. Every single one of us deserves God's wrath. And every single one of these firstborn sons would eventually die. It's not that they uh, had a fate that nobody else had. They would all eventually die, because we all die. Every single human being dies. It's one of the outcomes of sin. In the case of these firstborn sons, it was just that many of them died a whole lot earlier than perhaps they would have been expected to. They would have perhaps been expected to live another 30, 40, 50 years. But because God knows every single thing about every single human being, God knew that these firstborn sons, even if they'd lived, would still not have responded to God. They'd have still chosen not to submit to him. So it's not that God is removing opportunities for them, because God knows in his wisdom and his ability to see all things from beginning to end, because he's outside of time, he knows what those individuals would have done. And he knew that they would have still chosen to reject God. So God isn't being unjust, he's not being unfair. We see this from our point of view, and it seems... Seems to me anyway, as a human being, this is a little bit unfair, this, is, this doesn't seem right. But God is absolutely holy. Every single one of us is a sinner. Every single one of these people in Egypt were sinners and deserved God's wrath. So whether they lived another 40 years or whether they died that night, the end result would have been the same. That might seem unfair to us, but that's because we look at it from a human perspective, a very flawed human perspective. See, we don't view sin the way that God views sin. We excuse sin. We normalize sin. We laugh at sin. We watch sin for entertainment. We downplay sin. Well, you know, it's no big deal. We relativize things. But God doesn't. Because God can't. Because God is utterly holy. It's very difficult for us to see things from God's perspective because we're not God, obviously. But it's something that we need to ask God to help us with because our standards, certainly my standards, are so far removed from God's standards. We need to, like this on your outline, if you're using the outline this morning, we need to ask God to help us see things from what is His true and right perspective. The Bible says God is true. And every word that God speaks is true. Therefore, if we are out of kilter with the truth that God speaks, then we are the ones who need to adjust our position. If I was writing this book, it would be a little bit different. There'd be a lot of stuff not in here, and there'd be things in here that aren't. But I'm not God. God wrote this. It's His Word. So we need to come as humble people and submit to the truth of this, this eternal, unchanging Word, statement of God. And said, I submit to this, even if I'm always that comfortable with it, it's not how I would do it. On the one hand, we need to ask God to help us to see lost people, people that haven't submitted to God, haven't asked Jesus to be their savior. We need to ask God to give us his heart for lost people. Because I don't know about you, but I don't look at lost people and my heart doesn't break as it should do. And we need to ask God to help us see people lost so that as we see people who don't know Jesus, our heart breaks for them. We want them to come into a relationship with God. Soften our hearts, Lord. Soften our hearts. Give us a love and a passion for lost people. That's seeing things from God's true and right perspective. But at the same time, we also need to ask God sin as God sees sin. As something that's disgusting and repugnant and offensive to a ferociously holy God. It's not that some sins are repugnant and disgusting. It's, that's not how God views sin. All sin is repugnant to God. And all sin flows out of a rejection 
of God. Our own worldviews that we have individually, we all think, well, this is kind of normal. But, that, but the way we view the world is massively, massively influenced by our friends, by the things we watch, by what we read, by social media, by the music we listen to. All those things are influencing, distorting how God sees the world, so that we see the world differently. And we need to constantly come back to God and say, but would you please help me see the world the way you see it? Would you please help me see sin the way that you see it? Would you help me have a love for people the way that you have a love for people? So that we see things and people the way that God sees them, and not the way that we see them. I just want to just take a moment now and just pause and maybe just close our eyes and pray, just quite in the quietness of our own hearts, that God would speak to us, God would speak to me, that God would speak to you, and help us to see things the way that God sees them. We don't look at the world and see it the way God sees it. Ask, just in this moment of quietness now, just, just come before the Lord in, in the silence of your own heart, but just say, look, I admit I don't see things the way you do. Some things in your word trouble me. Some things around the world trouble me. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help me see things as you truly see them. Give me a godly, righteous perspective on people and on situations, I pray. Two names. It was called Aviv and also called Nisan, not to be confused with the Carmen, Japanese Carmen. But it's the same month. It's in the Bible, it's called Aviv and it's called Nisan. One is a religious name, one is a, a civil name for it. And the first month of the Jewish year runs from about uh, halfway through March until about halfway through April. It's not quite the same as our calendar. So this would have happened, these great events would have happened in what is our springtime, what would be springtime for us here in the UK. And the tenth day of the first month, each month, the month of Abbey, they were to select a lamb. So every year after this great event, and Jews, will, uh, and Jews who still follow the Bible, the Old Testament, they will still do this today. They will take a lamb, and they will put it to death, and they'll have a special meal, a Passover meal. And they will eat the lamb. The very name Passover goes back to the fact that God passed over the Israelites when he saw the blood. And they were to eat unleavened bread, bread without yeast, to help remind them that they had to leave in a hurry. But yeast is also, in the Bible, a symbol of purity, or a symbol of sin, impurity rather. So the fact that you eat unleavened bread is a symbol, it's a kind of symbolic way of showing the fact that God hates sin. 
And so in the future, they were not just to eat unleavened bread to remind them of the haste in which they had left Egypt. They were to eat unleavened bread to remind them that God hates sin. It would remind them that God was pure, that they needed to live pure lives and holy lives. And if they wanted to have a relationship with God, then they needed to do that through having their sins removed and dealt with by God through sacrifice. So Moses says these words to the Israelites as he was instructing them about the Passover. This is what he says in verse 24. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land, the Lord will give you as he promised. Observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it is the Passover, the sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. Now fast forward 1,477 years, exactly, from that famous night, and we find Jesus, an Israelite, a Jew, doing exactly what every Jew had been commanded to do back there in Exodus 12. Jesus was celebrating the Passover with his friends, the disciples. Luke 22 verse 14 says this, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I eagerly desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Very night before Jesus was crucified, he was celebrating. In fact, Jesus, I eagerly desired to do this with you before I suffer. And that very night, there he was with his disciples in an upstairs room, remembering, looking back, looking back on what God had done, remembering that God had seen the blood of the Lamb and had passed over his ancestors, their ancestors, and had led them out of Egypt and led them out of slavery, and led them into a new life, which we're going to see in the next few weeks. And then Jesus did a very peculiar thing. Having celebrated Passover, or in the middle of celebrating Passover, Luke 22, verse 19 says this, And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So after taking part in a meal, or in the middle of taking part in a meal, which was all an act of remembrance and celebration, the Passover, Jesus now introduced a new act of remembrance and celebration. He took the unleavened bread that was on the table in front of them, and he passed it to the disciples, and he told them to eat it and do so from now on in remembrance of him. The bread from now on was to be a symbol, it was to be a picture of Jesus' own body, which in less than 24 hours' time was going to be nailed to a cross as Jesus was put to death. Then he took a cup of wine, which was on the table, and he passed it around, and look at what it says in Matthew 26. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So on the very night that the Jews were remembering the lambs that had been put to death and whose blood had been put on the doorposts uh, for their ancestors 1,477 years earlier, Jesus, in the middle of that situation, introduces a brand new thing. He introduces a, a new meal involving bread and wine. And its purpose was to ensure that those who loved him, from that moment on, would remember and would look back and would celebrate what his death, what Jesus' death, not what the death of lambs 1,477 years earlier had done, but now what Jesus' death had accomplished. And that's one of the reasons why we come together this morning. We've come to take bread and wine together to do what Jesus has asked us to do, to remember and to celebrate his sacrifice for us there on the cross. 
And as Jews, the events of the Passover, 1400 or so years earlier, they were precious to Jesus. They were precious to the disciples. It was something that God had commanded every Jew to do. And Jesus obeyed every single command of the law of, that God had given to Moses, including celebrating Passover every year. But they thought, when they looked back and remembered how amazingly merciful God had been to them, and had brought them out of slavery, and had passed over them, having given them new life, they were overwhelmed with, with joy and with gratitude. As Jesus celebrated the Passover that night with his disciples, he was demonstrating something really important. What, what Jesus was saying was, look, this has been a real event. This, this meal that we've taken for 1,400 or so years, it's a meal that looks back to a real event that happened. But actually tonight I'm showing you that I am the true fulfillment of everything that that meal uh, represents. One of the features of the Old Testament of the Bible is that it's full of events and people that are real events, but they also point forward to something and someone even greater. So real events that really happened, but they point forward to something and someone. And that something and that someone is Jesus. They point forward to Jesus. And Jesus is saying, look, I am the fulfillment of that Passover. This meal was called the Passover, and this meal was no exception. It was a real event, and every year after that it had its purpose, which was to demonstrate the blood of those lambs had secured the safety of the Israelites. But ultimately, it was speaking of and pointing forward to a much greater, a much more important sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus and the shedding of his blood on the cross. John the Baptist was a man who God used to tell people to tell people of Israel that Jesus was coming and he tried to get them prepared and ready for the fact that Jesus was coming. And on one occasion he was with a crowd of people and he saw Jesus coming towards him and he, and he said these words as he pointed to him. He said, look, the next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God. And he says that as the Lamb of God, he's going to take away the sins of the world. And what a bizarre thing to say. Again, if you're kind of used to church and you might have read these verses, you might just kind of wash over you. But it's a strange thing to say. To point at a man and say, there's a lamb. Was John blind? Was he a little bit crazy? Well, Jesus obviously wasn't a real lamb. That's not what John was saying. But the role that Jesus performed when he died was just like the lambs that died at Passover. Calling Jesus the Lamb of God was a kind of word picture that tells us about Jesus and tells us what he would do and what he did when he died there on the cross. Remember how the Israelites had to take a lamb and they had to, for four days, from the 10th day to the 14th day, they had to observe it and make sure it was spotless, it was without blemish, it was without defect. Then they were to sacrifice it and they were to apply the blood to the doorposts and the lintels of their homes and sheltering under that blood would ensure their safety. John was saying, John was in a kind of picture way, was saying that Jesus was the fulfillment of that event. That event happened, it had its own purpose in time, but ultimately it pointed forward to the fact that Jesus was coming. And it was fulfilled in and by and through Jesus. The Bible says that just like that Passover lamb, Jesus would be watched and observed but found to be sinless and perfect. Hebrews 4.15 says this, that Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Jesus was utterly sinless. And then he would voluntarily lay down his own life upon the cross, 
shedding his blood for you and for me. And right throughout history and right throughout the Bible, God always teaches that the only way that sin could be dealt with, the only way for sin to be forgiven was for blood to be shed. Through a sacrifice. The blood is a picture of the fact that there's been a sacrifice. Somebody else had to pay the price for that sin. Sin has to be dealt with. God can't overlook sin. God's wrath and judgment towards sin and people's rejection of him is always dealt with in the way that God runs by the shedding of blood. The Bible says this, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And the blood of the lambs that were shed in Exodus 12, they had no special power to this blood, it was just lamb's blood, but it was used by God as a way of distinguishing between the Egyptians and the Israelites. It was a visible symbol. And Jesus' blood is the same, but also different. When we talk about the blood of Jesus, it's an expression we often use, we often sing it, it's in lots of our songs, it's in the Bible. When we talk about the blood of Jesus, we're not saying that his blood has some kind of magic to it. When we read in the Bible of Jesus' blood, it's simply another way of us talking about his sacrificial death on the cross. That's what the expression Jesus' blood means. When we see that expression Jesus' blood, it basically simply means his sacrificial death on the cross. The term the blood of Jesus or the blood of the Lamb means the same. It's the same as the sacrificial death of Jesus. The visible evidence of blood that had been shed was the proof, is the proof that a life has been given. And the Bible says Jesus gave his life for you and for me. And whilst giving his life on that cross, shedding his blood, showing that his life was being given, something phenomenal happened. Second Corinthians 5 21 says this Christ had no sin. But God made him become sin, so that in Christ we could become right with God. Jesus was perfect and sinless. He didn't become a sinner on the cross, but he became our sin. And God the Father placed all of your sins and all of my sins upon Jesus, our sacrifice, our substitute. And he poured out all his wrath against our sin, all our rejection of him. And Jesus became that substitute in our place. The Lamb, back in uh, Egypt was a sacrifice in place of the firstborn male of each Israelite house. And the blood of the lambs on the doorposts symbolized that a sacrifice had been made, a substitute sacrifice had died. And that meant that all those in houses that had the blood applied to the doors, the blood of the lamb, they were able to shelter from God's judgment. On the cross, Jesus became our substitute sacrifice as he died in our place. He was the Lamb of God, the greatest Lamb, not a real Lamb, but in picture form, the greatest sacrifice that would ever die. And as he did that, he enables us to escape God's wrath and God's punishment, to shelter under his blood. You know, when the Israelites slaughtered their lambs, they had to do something. The Lamb had already died, but to get the benefit of the Lamb's death, they had to do something. That to take the blood, that to apply it to their doorposts, to get the protection that that would bring. And Hebrews 11, 28 says this about Moses, By faith he kept the Passover and the application of blood. The destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. Moses and all the people of Israel had to place their faith, they had to do something, they had to put their trust in the blood of those lambs that had been slain to protect them from God's judgment. And it's just like that with us and Jesus. Jesus has already died for our sins. He's already paid the punishment for our sins. He took the full punishment 2,000 years ago. His blood has been shed. The Bible says this, Christ, our Passover lamb, 
has been sacrificed. Christ, our Passover, in, in other words, what his sacrificial death has accomplished, we have, faith. we have to put our trust in Jesus' blood, in his death. So write this down, if I want to, if I want to benefit from Jesus' sacrifice, I need to put my faith in him. His, what he's done stands there for us to, to benefit from, but if we're going to benefit from it, we need to put our faith and trust in him. Now that doesn't mean that we have to paint our doorposts with blood, but in a spiritual sense, we apply what his blood, in other words, his death, we apply what his death achieved to our lives. And when we do that, when we give our lives to Jesus and place our faith and trust in him, we shelter, as it were, under his blood. We are spared. We are sheltering from God's wrath. We deserve God's wrath. We sin, we've come short of God's eternal standard. We've blown it. We've got nothing to face but God's wrath. But if we place our faith in Jesus, then God no longer sees our sins. Instead, he looks at us and he sees the blood of Jesus. He looks at you, he looks at me, and he sees that your sins have been dealt with and atoned for by Jesus on the cross. And when we do that, just like the Israelites in Egypt, we set free from slavery. They were slaves to physical slavery. The Bible says each one of us is slaves to sin. When we put our faith in Jesus' sacrificial death for us, we're set free from slavery to sin. And we're adopted in God's family. We become servants. We become slaves to God, slaves to Jesus. People that we, that we give ourselves lovingly to God in response to what he's done for us. Peter says this, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And you know what? Once we've placed our faith in Jesus, once we're sheltering under his blood, as it were, the blood of the lamb, then nothing can take that safety away. In a minute, we're going to be obedient to Jesus' command to take bread and wine. And we're going to celebrate what his death has achieved for us by taking this bread and this wine. And in our case, it's just grape juice. But we're going to celebrate the fact that instead of facing God's wrath, we can enjoy his love. We can enjoy his mercy. Because of one simple reason. Jesus, the Lamb of God, shed his blood for us. And I would encourage you to come to Jesus this morning as the bread and wine goes round. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, if you've never done that, that's not something you've done. Then do that this morning as the bread and the wine comes round. Admit that you are a sinner that needs God's forgiveness. The forgiveness that God offers through Jesus. Through his sacrificial death on the cross, through his blood. <coughs> and ask him to be your Lord and your Saviour. And if that's something that you've already done, which is perhaps probably most people here, I guess, and that's something that you've done in the past, then again, as the bread and the wine comes around, can I encourage you to meet with Jesus afresh this morning? The danger of doing something so often is that familiarity breeds contempt, and we, we become familiar with it, and we forget the reality of this. Come and meet with Jesus afresh this morning, the one who gave himself for you, for me. And if you've messed up this week, if you feel unworthy, if you feel like you are far away from God, you've not prayed to God in weeks or months, you've messed up, you've been doing stuff and going places and doing things and thinking things that are far from God, and you feel at a distance this morning, and you know you're not where you should be, then don't stay at a distance, come near to God as He comes to you through bread and wine this morning. Once again, encounter the love of Jesus, the mercy of God. Ephesians 1 verse 7 and 8 says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us 
Thank you. Celebrate the fact that you are sheltering under the blood of Jesus, that your sins have been dealt with, that you've been forgiven, that you've been made right with God by Jesus.